If you go through a design process, by the time you get to the end and you develop a product, making any significant change to that is not only nearly impossible, it's often very costly. A lot of people, when they go to a new location, they buy one of the travel guides to that country. And ideas that are all centered or framed with the goal of supporting identity development. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, educators and innovators, welcome to the electrifying season three of ISSEDU Learn. Ask me anything with your dynamic host, Mike P and Dana. We're not just here to make waves, we're here to ride the tidal waves of your incredible support to the 21,000 strong downloaders and listeners who joined us on this incredible journey. We tip our hats to you. Your unwavering enthusiasm and active engagement fuels the very heartbeat of our mission. This season, we're not holding back. We're unleashing a tsunami of valuable insights, strategies, and practical wisdom that will effortlessly weave into the tapestry of your educational institutions. Whether you're ready to implement change today or set sail on a journey of profound exploration, trust us, we got you covered. For the inside scoop of upcoming events and certification opportunities that rock your world, point your browsers to iss.edu slash events. Are you ready to ride the podcast wave of a lifetime? Mike P and Dana are here to make it happen. Let the learning adventures begin. ISSEDU Learn, Ask Me Anything, Season 3. Dive in. Ladies and gentlemen, educators and change makers, welcome yet to another episode of EDU Learn, Ask Me Anything, brought to you by ISS EDU Learn. I'm your host, Mike P., your favorite educator interviewer, alongside with my co-host, Dr. Dana Speckowatt, who's the Director of Learning and Research and Outreach at ISS. How are you feeling today, Dana? I'm hopeful. I like that. Well, here's another one for you. You know, I have to do a weather check nowadays. I know. You always ask me how I'm doing, and then I say I'm doing great, and you're like, really? You got to come up with something new. So I thought hopeful was good. Weather's beautiful, crisp fall day here in Princeton, New Jersey. And I love this time of year. Oh, so it's a little bit better than last time, I see. Oh, yeah. It's been rainy and dreary. All right. Perfect. Uh, We also have with us Molly Faye, serving as the voice of the audience. Molly Faye is the customer support and technology coordinator at ISS. Welcome, Molly Faye. Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here. Awesome. Welcome back, our listeners. This is season three, episode five of our podcast. We want to express our gratitude and unwavering support. Don't forget to hit the subscribe, give us a thumbs up and leave us a review on all your preferred podcast platforms. We can be located on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, and numerous others. Our mission is to provide you with valuable insights and practical strategies for your educational institutions. The season has been brimming and illuminated with discussions and actionable insights, and this one will be no less than that. Be sure to stay informed with all of our upcoming virtual events and certifications by visiting iss.edu slash events. For career opportunities, you can also explore our virtual and in-person job fairs. Now let's dive into another exciting episode of Discovering and Learning. Today we have the privilege of hosting yet another exceptional guest, Lawrence Alexander II. Lawrence has recently shared his wealth of knowledge and expertise through our course on the EDU platform. The course delves into understanding the importance of inclusive and equitable recruitment and hiring practices in creating a diverse and effective workplace. Our discussion today centers around inclusive excellence in recruitment, hiring, and retention. 
And before we explore the topic a bit more, I'll just let uh, Lawrence go ahead and uh, introduce himself a bit more. I know that Lawrence has worked in the education years for 20 years and with a background in college admissions and DEIB. Lawrence, did you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and welcome to our podcast? Well, Mike P., thank you so much for the uh, the warm welcome. And it does sound thus far like you are the voice of choice. You're the people's champion. Glad to be seeing all these. You all who will be listening don't have the privilege of seeing what I'm seeing right now. But there are, are, are three beautiful faces around the screen smiling back at me. So it makes my lifting light. I'm grateful to be with all of you all. My name is Lawrence Alexander, as was shared. I think pursuant to the conversation, the dual functions where we have the most challenges is when we have to make the decision amongst a small number of candidates for very few spots. So admissions became a very easy entree into hiring as we go from a pool of candidates to winnowing it down to one appointee, one hire, one student and the several systems by where we make those choices often say less about the appointee, the candidate. It often says more about our school community, yet of the process, we put the candidate or the appointee on trial when it should really be the systems by where and the metrics by where in our decision matrix that we've made this appointment. And so it's been really an honor to help schools reflect not just on people, but on practice. More importantly, uh, following up with all the great peas this morning, it's great to be on your podcast. Thank you so much, Lawrence. Now, Lawrence, if we could go back to maybe your first job or maybe your first job ever or your first career job, like how was your hiring process during those times? Oh, goodness. Yeah. For the listeners, uh, at 42 years old, I remember going through employment in the early 2000s and then certainly through the 2010s. Way long ago for the TikTokers, but we're we're glad that you all are listening too. And it always felt of the interview process like you were going before a firing squad. There was one of you as a candidate. There were 10 to 12 to any number of folks in the community, and they were just firing off questions. And the list of questions, even back then, because you don't always have language for the experience until you kind of survive it. There was no way, in my opinion, with the list and boundary of questions that they had, that they were even listening to my responses. It kind of felt like the firing squad was just excited to take their shot, but they weren't listening to the answers that I was giving. And then the battery or the schedule that was listed was interview after interview after interview after interview with constituency and constituency and constituency. And a lot of folks did which a lot of folks still do, is that they try to have you interview casually over a meal. Please, dear goodness, if you are hiring organizations, either interview people or feed them, just don't do both. I have starved, though good folks have offered me breakfast, lunch, and dinner during the interview process. And so maybe succinctly, Mike P., the voice of choice, my interviewing process always felt heavy on the school um, peppering the questions at me, the the process not producing any flavor for me to get to know the school and certainly for the school to get to know me. So Lawrence, can you go ahead and just go a little bit, I guess, delve a little bit further for us and share some key strategies to go beyond that checkbox that you're saying. And so that there also could be 
an opportunity for schools to promote diversity as well? Absolutely. I, I think we start the hiring process backward. We look at the vacancy that we have, and we're trying to plug in a human being into a spot that we have without examining the spot and our community. To wit, if we replace a math teacher, we're looking at a specific math teacher with a specific set of skills, when maybe if we first look at our community, we could probably internally fill that math teacher role, and maybe we're hiring someone who could be interested in STEM or innovation, or maybe we can just find an awesome human being and then upskill them for the role. As I've shared during our webinar, a female mentor said something I'll never forget. She says she hires for culture and then she trains for competence. We often as schools fail before we go to market because we're so myopic in terms of who it can be, where they need to come from, and what skills they have. That whole matrix I call right-sizing. So how do we first examine what we need and who we need in the market and then go to market for phenomenal adults to work in our community and expect to train them? It's an interesting tone deafness I observe that schools have where they expect. We expect. We open our doors. We fly our flags. We expect to develop students. And we do not expect to develop educators. So they have to get ready-made, <laughs> developed, and certified somewhere else for us to hire them, underpay them, and expect them to stay. What if we shifted the paradigm and expected to develop educators the ways in which we develop students? Are you an educator looking to elevate your career? Consider more than university your gateway to success in international schools. They offer fully online programs with flexible start dates and affordable tuition rates, allowing you to balance work and personal life. Moreland University isn't your typical institution. Say goodbye to dull lectures and hello to engaging, interactive learning with passionate educators like yourself. It's a hands-on education that sparks creativity and prepares you for the real-world challenges. With Moreland University, you can earn a prestigious U.S. teaching certification or a master's degree in education from anywhere in the world. Their programs are designed to empower you to become a leader in your field. Don't wait. Take your steps forward, transforming your career today. Visit www.moreland.edu and apply now. Let Moreland University help you make a difference in student lives worldwide, one classroom at a time. Your journey to becoming an exceptional educator starts with Moreland University. A brighter future begins with you. Lawrence, I, I would also say that we should also expect to develop leaders. And too often we look outside our institutions for the next leadership position instead of looking within and mentoring and supporting others. And one of the things I, I used to run a lot of workshops on women in leadership, and I would always say, you know, I want you to walk out of here and I want you to find two or three people at your school to mentor who don't look like you. Do not agree with everything you have to say, <laughs> who have diverse opinions and have diverse backgrounds and have different and who challenge you because those people probably that shows that they've got they're willing to take a risk. And if they're willing to take a risk with their boss, then they're willing to take a risk to support people and to do the right thing. And, and I think that's so important. One of the things that you're saying that makes me wonder, so 
often, more than once, I've been offered a position where they didn't really have the position. They wanted me. And then they developed me or they found a position within the organization after some time to kind of fit me. And I love that. I've, that has, those have been my favorite jobs. However, I also worry that then is that a place of privilege? Because then it's about who do you not, it could be who you know, or it could leave people out who, until you know them and you see them, like, I would think like, I would love to work with you in more capacities. Do I have a job right now? No. But like, could I invent one, right? Yes. But then I think, okay, but now who else did I not include? Did I not put a job description out there? Did I not put it out there? So how do you balance those two components? Dana, I think you touch on an interesting phenomenon. I think there's a number of names by which that rose is no, known. I think one of them is called tapping. You know, I'm just going to tap someone in my network. I believe in them, their potential. They can grow. They can develop. We can develop them. Let's do it. And the fact is, we've done that. We do it for white men all the time. The risk culture is only associated when we're tapping into historically underrepresented communities and leadership, which include women of all backgrounds, include people of color from all backgrounds, include queer folks from all backgrounds. You can go downless, downless, downless. And so I think one of the elephants in the room to confront is that we've always tapped people. The risk culture is only associated when it has a diversity hashtag with it. I think one, I think the other piece that you made was an excellent point. I frankly believe as a career-long people connector recruiter, you're only as good as the diversity of people in your network. And boy, for this straight, cis, varsity boy locker room meathead, it's been challenging as I'm grateful that I have a number of female leaders in my circle. It's challenging because if I only recruited out of my fantasy football chat group, you know, a lot of folks might look like me in, in so many ways. And so I think what you said ultimately about keeping people close, who don't share your views, share your opinions, who challenge you, especially in today's age, where for many reasons I understand about psychological safety, we have retreated into these echo chambers. Diversity of any kind is not often found in your proximity. So what if we could put the two together? What if we were to challenge ourselves to broaden our circles, deepen our pools of our personal networks, and in some ways tapped or grew from within that? Because by the way, here kind of goes that fourth wall. When schools don't do that, it makes search <laughs> and placement work extremely difficult because you essentially then reach out to us recruiters, search consultants to tap into our networks, which we have, to find a broad range of talent, which we have, to cause cognitive dissonance for you, for culture you have not cultivated. You know, I'm so glad you brought up the tapped comment because I was at a leadership conference two, three years ago and sitting outside at a table, there's a bunch of us, there's probably 20 plus people sitting at this table, you know, having drinks, eating some food. And one of the men said, oh yeah, I remember when I was tapped my first year being athletic director at my school. So I was like, just wait a second. I'm like, let's just do a quick poll at the table. How many people here have been tapped? Every single white male had been tapped and anyone with any sense of diversity had not. 
And I was like, whoa, that is amazing. So yeah, it has been happening all the time. Let's just be more careful about who we're tapping. Absolutely. And and please, I can I sometimes dress up as an empath. For white male listeners to this podcast, this is not anti-you. A hundred percent. In fact, the, the way forward has been shared with us thinking about a global stage through Bishop Desmond Tutu and Nelson Mandela, when you talk about truth and reconciliation, really the way to liberate oneself, if you found yourself the beneficiary of a system, is first to elocute, yep, I've benefited. And in that, you find your liberation, not by putting you on trial, but putting the system on trial. Mm -hmm. So if you're listening and you feel like it's about you, it's really about the system from which you can admit you've benefited that more people can benefit from. It is not this gaslighting or perpetuating of a zero-sum game. We can have more through that. I don't think many of us around this screen would have had some, not all of the opportunities. If at some point someone didn't tap us, we just recognize that if it was good for us, it should be good for many. As a Black, straight, cis, Christian male in the United States who went to an all-boys Jesuit school, I tell people from a privileged perspective, I'm like one chromosome away from being a white man. So if anybody can understand that this, this ship needs to be righted, it's me. So I'm one of the guilty seeking that liberation. I love that. Lawrence, know that you have experience in DEIB. Has it changed from DEIJ? And what exactly does the B stand for now? As an educational professional, you likely understand the positive and crucial role inclusion has on classroom culture. And you might be on the lookout for a community of like-minded educators. Senya International is that community. Senya is a nonprofit organization that advocates for individuals with disabilities and promotes inclusive educational practices across the globe. With a network of educators, families, students, and professionals, Senya offers connection, professional learning, and support for educators like you. Connect with the Senya community via our membership program or a local chapter in your area. Enjoy professional learning with the Senya community via our podcasts, online certification program, and in-person or virtual conferences. Support Senya through our sponsorships, awards, and scholarship program. So, what are you waiting for? For more information, head to our website, senyainternational.org. That's S-E-N-I-A international.org. And together, we continue to make a difference and fulfill our vision of living in an inclusive world. It's a really good question. I think in terms of just being honest with you all, you know, as a 42-year-old man with parents, who grew up in the Jim Crow South with great grandparents who were sharecroppers. It's not like in 42 years as a little kid with my black parents trying to explain a structurally racist America to me. They never bent down at the waist and said, uh, little Larry, because that's what my mom would have called me. Uh, we're going to teach you about DEIB or DEIJ. We didn't have such acronyms. It was about surviving white people and racism. And so I think there's a degree to which this whole alphabet suit is wave nouveau. So to your point about the diachronic journey, there was a time where it's multiculturalism, multicultural education, it's diversity education, then it's diversity and inclusion. We keep adding letters to it. The justice part of it, the justice part of it, and I'll get to the B, is interesting for me because I think, and I don't know what it was like globally, but I think domestically in the United States, 
the J really became interesting when we knew what justice was during the pandemic. Four, I have six of my own children, 21, 17, now 12, 10, five, and three. And many of us as educators got to find out what the most just thing to do would be if you fundamentally realized that schools of all types were corrupt. The most just thing you could do was homeschool. And we tried it during the pandemic. We don't like it. I don't like justice that much. Send the kids back to school. We'll figure it out. And so if we did the most just thing in our schools, we'd quit our jobs. I'm living the sermon. So (laughs) the most just things, I'm not sure that schools can really accomplish. So I've always had this interesting relationship with the J word. I think there's vestiges of charity or social action that people confuse for justice. But if we took justice to the definition, I, for one, am curious, maybe skeptical about the J. The B, belonging, actually came to education from more corporate spaces. And uh, what I like about the philosophical approach to belonging is that it's ultimately a wider tent under which all of us, inclusive of and regardless of political leanings, ways of seeing the world, can agree that every member in the community, students and employees, should feel like they belong. As kind of my social judo, I like the idea of belonging because it gives us a home plate, if it were baseball. That's if we want to score, if if belonging is scoring, we can at least agree that we should get folks across home plate to that. What I love is what white anti-racist journalist and speaker Tim Wise says, using the baseball analogy. And he says about privilege, that privilege is being born on third base, but believing you hit a home run. Mm. Belonging then is this idea that everybody can agree that we should belong. And yet, if you were born on third base... And again, in many ways, I was through privilege. All you have to admit is while I'm sitting here on third base, there are plenty of people who aren't even in the parking lot. And so to your answer about belonging, if we strike the right chord in schools, we can agree that it's the goal for everyone, as with equity and inclusion in mind, for the diversity that we're inviting, we recognize that there are some folks not on third base, not in the stadium, They don't even know a game is being played. If we measure the distance from belonging, then I think it belongs in our alphabet soup. Can I get a quick example of how you can have belonging in schools or foster that belonging culture in schools? Absolutely. So I'm all about structures. I read a Black woman's shirt during the pandemic on LinkedIn, and it said policy is my love language. And so I'm all about it. So, you know, we can go to thoughts and feelings, hopes and prayers on some other podcasts, but I'll give you a structural example of belonging. In many institutions, and I know it's a global audience, so how you folks leverage financial aid and its relationship with diversity is different. But I'll give you a practical example from at least the United States. Uh, One of the ways we achieve really quick microwavable ramen noodle type diversity is that we just buy it. We leverage it through financial aid, whether it's athletes or kids from uh, community-based organizations or CBOs, we we just buy it. We we don't wait and invest time in strategy and community. We just microwave it and buy it to achieve diversity. What we've discovered is that many financial aid programs with the cost of attendance 
covered for students is bereft of the real analysis of not only the true cost of attendance, but the cultural cost of attendance. Practical example, Mike, because you're giving me that look. Many students take boarding schools who go away to boarding schools. If you're a full pay family, international family, you can afford it. When they have family visiting programs, family weekend, graduation, et cetera, it has been an observation. And I've worked in two boarding schools that many of those full pay families, many of those families of means are always at their kids' programs. They're always in the communities regardless of distance. Well, now, does that mean that the scholarship families care less about their children? or lack the contextual affordances to make those visits possible. For many of those families, it's all they can do to drop their kid off in the beginning of the year. And in many of the schools I was at, they can't even come get them at the end of the year. They take public transportation to get there. So in two schools that I've worked at, we've re-examined the scholarship programs and the financial aid programs so that they now cover two family members to come to the family weekends, the family visiting weekends, and to graduation when the student graduates. How can I feel like I belong in a community that perpetuates the real experience of the have and have nots? One of the structural ways we've confronted what belonging looks like is the true cost of attendance. If you're a person from a historically marginalized background and, and from a lower socioeconomic class, which working in Northern New Hampshire, we're not a bunch of kids of color, we're a bunch of white kids. We also recognize that from a socioeconomic perspective in communities we curate through admissions that our third basers and our parking lot kids are, are very different. So that's one structural example about fostering a true sense of belonging by staring the true disparities in our communities head on. Lawrence, along those lines, how then do we also take policy, right, and make that part of the onboarding process when we bring in, you know, a lot of schools in the past two to three years have spent a lot of time perhaps hiring, you know, they click the box. Okay, great. Now I've got someone who fits this role and this identity and this identity in my school. But how do we make sure that not only that they're onboarded appropriately, but then also they want to stay? And how do we do that through policy? I think that's a I think it's a great question. So I'll start with the recruiting function because I know it's part of the conversation here. When we post positions, how often through the evaluation process, through the recruiting process, are we talking about the skills and competencies that we're looking for in the next person in this role? Many of us get this wanderlust, especially when we feel like we have a candidate from a historically marginalized background on the hook. And then we start just talking about diversity man, this is going to be great for our community. It's going to be great for our students and you. And what it can feel like on the other end is the hook is I'm going to be the diversity hire. And then we're presented to the community. This is the diversity hire. Well, when you plant me in the community and I've been the box that you checked, I don't feel like the leader that you wanted to promote. And so pragmatically, how many of our schools, and the answer is very few, have skills matrices and a professional growth and development ladder to say, we're bringing you in here year one and not you need to grow here, but here's where we want to put you two years from now, three years from now. We're not as much in the business of creating leaders as we are filling spots. Mm -hmm. And while it in the moment has a deleterious impact on candidates from historically marginalized backgrounds, as is true with this kind of work, 
it's bad for everyone. So if you solve it for folks from historically marginalized backgrounds, you also solve it for everyone. It just so happens that when folks show up in a greater minority in your community, they go through that canary in the coal mine experience with their light lungs, not fragility, experience the toxicity in the community. Hi everyone, this is Aaron Moniz, one of the co-founders of Inspire Citizens. My name is Scott Jameson, and I'm the Global Collaborations Lead for Inspire Citizens. We help inspire schools to live their mission of global citizenship. We look at existing units through the lens of empathy to impact and connect student learning with themes like sustainable development, harmony with nature, social justice, and the holistic well-being of our community. We also work with students to co-design student leadership programs. Another way that we support educators is through our Global Citizenship Certificate in partnership with ISS. This certificate program involves best practice resources for global citizenship education, interactive opportunities to engage with other cohort members, a great team of coaches to walk you through your learning, and optional opportunities to connect via seminars with other participants from around the world. Please visit inspirecitizens.org and click on the Inspire Educators tab to register for the Global Citizenship Certificate, visit the ISS website, or go to the ISS EduLearn Passport to register today. At Inspire Citizens, we believe that the young people in our schools have the potential to lead change and inspire others through their work towards a more sustainable future. We look forward to working with you, and we hope that together, our resources and your contacts can help to create a more harmonious future. So, Lawrence, this kind of plays off a lot of the topics that you've been talking about throughout the podcast. But as Mike mentioned at the top of the podcast, I kind of stand in the gap for the ISS community. I ask questions that have been submitted by folks who are interested. And the kind of question of the day is talking about measuring the success of hiring practices and how it's crucial. And the question is, what metrics or indicators should schools look at to assess the effectiveness of their inclusive hiring strategies and how can they continually improve over time? I love that, Molly. The shift is certainly about using data and then there are several asterisks. I think there's something to being data informed than data driven. When we're data driven, we can continue to perpetuate a practice without reflection because the numbers say we should do it. When we're data informed, we've developed a strategy, we're reflecting on practice and the numbers are a slice of the pie, but not the pie itself. So I would make a real dot there on being data informed. Pragmatically, there's a uh, organization, I think they're global, but ADP, they're like a paycheck processing company really deep into HR and staffing. While I don't love the name, the solution, the technological solution, which came out a couple of years, I think is really instructive as an answer to your question, Molly. They have what they call a diversity tracker. Again, I don't love the title, but I do like what it does. It's essentially the name of their uh, hiring CRM. With it, if candidates divulge identity information, they can then track those ethnographic stats through application submitted, first interview granted, second interview granted, finalists, first job, first offer accepted, first offer denied, 
and it can go all the way to through retention data. So I think, especially with as many technologists as we have here in our schools, we can create some kind of tracker. Now, I would hold as a metric of success, which goes back to what Dana kind of highlighted earlier, and I think is the subtext of your question. For me, success is in the creation of a strong process, not necessarily in the outcome, because we are schools. And so it's not like we can find our top candidate of any background and then offer them the $8 million that's going to make it work. And so I'm not one who believes that though you go through a great process, you hire a great, uh, or you make an offer to a great candidate from historically marginalized background, that their hire is in it of itself the success. Rather, reflecting on, well, how many folks applied? Are we posting in the right places? Can we reflect on our messaging? Are we missing? Are we not able to hire someone because no one applies? Then we can reflect on process. Wow, we've had this wide of funnel at the first interview, but those first interview folks didn't become semifinalists. What did they experience in the process? What did we do? Well, we have folks in the semifinalist process. They weren't finalists. And I see that all the time. For many schools, it's good enough to virtue signal diversity in the earlier rounds, but in the latter rounds, kind of like the yo-yo diet, they go back to themselves. And so in answering your question, I think we can. And in fact, many industries and, and technological solutions are able to track the process I would still hold in great hope and appreciation for my colleagues that the success is not the outcome in terms of the hire. I think it's the process by where we went about bringing uh, about that outcome. Thanks for that, Lawrence. Now, as we come towards the end of our podcast here, I know this may be a question that's going to take a lot to answer, but try your best, I guess, in about five minutes to do so. But we spoke a lot about getting someone hired. How do we keep them? Isn't it great relationship advice? Getting is easy. How do I keep them? You know, I feel like, you know, not only schools have that question. I remember when I was a child, almost in the most complimentary of ways, I mean it, almost all of my teachers were old. I don't remember through kindergarten, through eighth grade, having a teacher who was younger than 50. They were career educators, not only career educators, they were career classroom teachers. My dad was a mailman, United States Postal Service, 38 years. My mom was a nurse for about that time, and she only had two employers. There was a generation who saw education as a lifelong profession. And this ain't that generation. I don't know if anybody noticed. And so how do we both hold intention and in appreciation that the next educator we hire can make great impact and not work for us for the rest of their lives? Mm. How do we put into context what we know about the global economy and education's inability to sustain an individual much less if they were to have a family for 20 to 30 years. Times have changed. How we hire educators has not. And if you are staring down the barrel of Generation Z, and if you think these young people 
are coming to your school five days a week in person for 10 to 12 hours a day for pay. That means they can't meet their rent. You are bugging. I think that's the technical term for it. So not only, not only do we need to hit the refresh button for old millennials like me, if you are in your schools right now and you think you're looking at the next generation of educators and think that you're going to recruit them or retain them the way that we've done it, I think we're missing it. Succinctly, I think there's a generation of innovation that's at our fingertips about the next workforce in education. I do not believe we're going to have our schools filled with educators who have dedicated 30 to 40 years to education, but might we appreciate strong tenures between five years and 20 years? Because really, that's all we're going to get. And maybe it's really all that we need. Thanks so much, Lawrence. Thanks so much. Dana or Molly, did you guys have any last words before we no, send you Lawrence off? inspire me. I just love hearing you talk. And yeah, please keep your voices needed. Thank you. Thank you all so much for your partnership, Molly. Thank you for representing the people. Mike P, thank you for being the voice of choice, my friend. No, no worries. Uh, did you want to let us, our audience know where they can contact you? Sure. I'd love to be uh, connected with you all in deep and meaningful conversation after here. My email address is just my name, Lawrence, L-A-W-R-E-N-C-E-Q, the number two at gmail.com. That's LawrenceQ2 at uh, gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram. It feels like I prepared for this at chapter and verse C-H-A-P-T-E-R-N-V-E-R-S-E. And I'm on LinkedIn under my name, but grateful for this moment and certainly grateful to be able to connect with you all after this. All right. Thank you so much, Lawrence, for sharing your valuable insights and experiences with us today. It's been a pleasure having you on EDU Learn. Ask me anything. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. If you found this episode inspiring and informative, please be sure to hit the like, subscribe, and share your AMA with your educator friends. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes. Until next time, keep exploring, keep learning, keep making a positive impact in the world of education. Bye-bye for now.